This life-changing message comes to you from Church of the Harvest. It's our prayer that this message will inspire your life and bring hope to your future. I'm going to finish up my message, Father's Design for Our Sexuality. You know, two weeks ago when I started this, I only got about maybe half as many people coming up and giving me the pat on the back and giving me compliments as before. And the crowd was awfully quiet. But that's all right. When we get into God's Word, God's Word is always a safe place. Isn't that right? We can always go to God's Word about whatever the situation is, and God always has something to say about it. Now, I started off last time telling you there's two things the church does not like to talk about. Money and sex. Right? Interestingly enough, those are also two things that are talked about the most in the Bible. Money and and sex. It's also the two things that cause divorces more than anything else. Money and sex. But we can't talk about them in church. If we don't talk about them in church, where are we going to talk about it? God sees these areas as extremely important. And I believe now so more than ever because sexual immorality is so rampant in our society today. It's not just normal, it's justified. And it's crept into the church. And I think for probably most of us, in some little ways, it's crept into our thinking and into our hearts. And so these are things we need to talk about. Now, I told you about atheism. Atheism is the disbelief or the lack of belief in God. But sexual atheism, first time I'd ever heard that term, sexual atheism is the disbelief or lack of a belief in God regarding our sex life. We love God, we love Jesus, we love our church, but when it comes to what God has to say about our sexuality, we plug our ears and close our eyes. We want things our way when it comes to that aspect of our life. And I was telling you about how Sean and I, we've done so much premarital counseling over the last few years, and we've gotten to the point where we automatically assume that any engaged couple that we're counseling, we automatically assume they're having sex for the married. I mean, 95% of the time, it's absolutely true. Which, as a pastor, that's kind of shocking because, you know, I'm not talking about unbelievers out in the world. I'm, I'm talking about folks who claim Jesus as Lord of their life, and he may very well be Lord of their life in every other area, except for this one. And many times we get this area of our life, and we make it off limits to God. It means we need to talk about it, right? Um, we live in a very sexually charged, obsessed culture. We're talking about that. It's easy to let our opinions about sexuality be driven by what the world says rather than what God says. So I gave you, I gave six things last week. I want to go over them real quick. The first thing I mentioned was, number one, that God is more pro-sex than you are. You think you love it? God loves it more. He made it. It was his gift to us. He said, this is awesome, and this is for you. And then he gave us boundaries. Somebody just said, thank you. <laughs> and it wasn't a man. <laughs> but understand that when God gave us this gift and he said, this is an awesome gift and this is for you, he put boundaries around it. And he said, look, my only thing is do it this way. These are my boundaries. If you don't do it like this, it will be destructive in your life. But we want to do it our way. But, and for some reason, it's crept over and the world has gotten this idea that the church thinks that sex is a bad thing. Of course it's not. Of course it's not. It's an awesome thing. The second thing I mentioned was that God's word 
was relevant in the first century and is relevant in the 21st century day. And I was talking about how we got, we've got this idea that, that back in the day, actually, we have this idea that the Word of God is not relevant today. We have this idea, it's being said, even by pastors today, that some things in the Word of God aren't really relevant in our society, in our culture today. It's kind of old-fashioned ways of thinking. It's not old-fashioned. It's cutting edge. That's what's causing all the controversy. It's as cutting edge today as it was back then. And I, I don't know if you remember, I was talking about how Zach and I were in the streets of Pompeii back months ago, and I, I, I was the first time I was really aware of how sexually immoral the culture was during Jesus' day. Remember I told you that we, people have this idea that this homosexual thing, this homosexual movement, this is all new. They didn't have to deal with this back then. Yes, they did. It was normal. Homosexuality was normal. Prostitution, male and female prostitution, was normal. Incest was absolutely normal. Bestiality was absolutely normal. I think we would look a little old-fashioned next to them. And so you've got Paul's writing, when he starts writing about these things, he's writing to the Corinthian church. And the Corinthian church, we talked about how it's the largest, it was the largest city in Greece, and it was a port city. And, man, I mean, the sailors were getting off the boat, you know? And the brothels were full. And there was all this sexually immoral stuff going on. And remember I told you about the, the, the largest temple there was the temple to Aphrodite. And part of the worship to Aphrodite was having sex in front of people. It was part of the worship service. And so Paul's winning all these people to Jesus, and they're all coming to Christ, and they're all coming together into the Corinthian church. And so Paul starts writing these letters to Corinthian church going, oh, we got to discuss some things. He's catching word from the church leaders there. And so he starts writing First and Second Corinthians. And he starts addressing some of these issues. Because people are coming to church. They've, they've received Jesus, and this is awesome. And they're coming to church, and they're going, what? We don't have sex in church? What? And it blew their mind. And so Paul said, we got to address some of these things. And so we read 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee from sexual immorality. We talked about that, that Greek word pornea. Means illicit sexual intercourse such as adultery, fornication, homosexuality. It includes bestiality, incest, anything that's out of bounds to God. All other sins a, a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Paul brings these issues to attention. He said, look, these aren't just side issues. We've got to look at this thing. And he said to flee from sexual immorality. And the word flee is such a passionate word. It's like fleeing from a wild animal. He didn't say stick around and see if maybe you can handle this. He said, get out of there as quick as you can. Get away from it because it will destroy you. And we went back to Genesis, we're talking about Adam and Eve, the very first marriage. And we saw in, in Genesis 2 where Adam committed himself to Eve. They were united covenant. Remember, it talks about leaving father and mother and being united together. First there was commitment, and then the two became one flesh, and there was sexual intimacy. And we talked about that in Scripture, sexual intimacy always follows commitment. In the Bible, commitment always comes first. Why? Because, like it says right there, the man and the woman were both naked and they felt no shame. Anytime we commit something that is sexually immoral to God, it brings a wound of shame to our life. And God is trying to save us from shame because shame takes us to number three. Shame becomes insecurities, which are barriers to intimacy. Some of us have dealt with that in this room. We had so much shame that once we finally got married and got things right, we had a hard time having any kind of intimate life with our significant other, with our husband or our wife, because of the shame that we had brought upon 
ourselves. The more insecure you are, the less able to be intimate in relationships you are. Adam and Eve messed up before God, and what's the first thing that happened? Shame came upon them. They covered themselves, and they hid from the face of God. The one that they were used to walking with in the garden every day, all of a sudden they were hiding from. Number four, God's purity plan for the single person is abstinence. I know that doesn't seem right in today's world, but it's God's word. That's what God's word says. And God's word says that on that cross, he poured out all the love that we would ever need, even if we never have a spouse. He poured out everything that we would ever need. And so for the single person, we've got to find our love in him. We've got to go deep into him and allow him to walk with us through that time. We talked about number five, God's purity plan for the married person is full sexual expression with their spouse for life. You and your spouse, not us and our spouse and somebody else, not us and our spouse and some video, not anything else. It's just us and our spouse for life. Number six, married couples should always be available and always interested in each other. We just talked about how as married couples, we are partners with our spouse in their sexual purity. So we've got to be there and we've got to be interested. And sometimes, sometimes we got to, as married couples, you've got to get going and spice things up. Amen? Come on. Good news is if we messed up, that's okay. We read in Scripture where it says Jesus went to the cross scorning its shame. He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus died taking our shame so we don't have to deal with it. So today, I'm moving on. Are y'all ready for this? Everybody take a deep breath. I'm going to have to move fast. I'm going to hit a few things here. And look, I have resigned myself to the fact already that some of you are not going to agree with me right from the get-go. <laughs> but I ask you to bear with me. I don't want to do anything but see what God's Word says. Amen? One of the biggest questions that's being asked in the church today Number one, what about homosexuality? You should have some note sheets that came in your service guide, and you can follow along there if you want or on the screen. What does the Bible say about homosexuality? And can homosexuals be Christians? All these different questions that are going around. Because we got churches right now that are ordaining homosexuals as priests and different things and pastors. And these are big questions that are being asked. At this point, in where our culture is today, most of us, many, if not most of us, probably know someone who is homosexual. Um, we've had folks in this church that attended regularly that were homosexual. Some of us have loved ones in our life that we deeply care for that are homosexual. And we've got to jump in and we've got to see what the scripture says. Now, the first scripture I'm going to give you, senior notes, is 1 Corinthians 9, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. This is the most commonly used scriptures. <laughs> These scriptures are usually used to say, I told you them gays are going to hell. This is that scripture, okay? This is that passage. Verse 9, it says, do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor prostit male prostitutes, 
nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That is what some of you were, but you were washed and you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. People read that and say, see, it says right there, gays are going to hell. Well, let's look at it. It says the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God. So who are the wicked? It does say the sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, male prostitutes, homosexual offenders, thieves, greedy, drunkards, swindlers, slanders. First point I want to make about this is, number one, this is not a complete list of the sins that are wicked. There's a lot of things left out. Why don't they mention female prostitutes? This, isn't a, this is not a complete list. I believe what this is, this is a list of the main issues they were dealing with in the Corinthian church. They were big problems. There were homosexuals in the Corinthian church. There were. And Paul's addressing it. Second thing I want to do here, let's take the sexual items out of the list for a minute. Idolaters, worshiping or exalting anything above God. Thieves, greedy, drunkards, slanders, backbiters, gossipers, swindlers. How many of us have ever been guilty of any of those things? Hmm. Yeah, me too, brother. I may struggle with drinking too much, and I know it's wrong, but I'm not as bad as them homosexuals. Nope. You know what he's doing right here? Paul leveled the playing field. He leveled the playing field, and he said, you were all guilty before you were forgiven. You do realize in this that he's writing to the church. He's writing to Christians. He's not writing to the people in the world. He says there, he lists all those sins, and he says, this is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. These are church folks he's writing to. This is kind of the same as when Jesus said in, in Matthew 5, he said, you have heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you, anyone who looks on a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in her heart. Jesus wasn't trying to make anybody feel bad. He was saying, you're all guilty, because the Pharisees were standing off to the side, and they kept posing these tricky questions to him. But what about adultery? I hadn't committed adultery. Well, I'll tell you this. If you've thought it in your heart, you're guilty. What? All of a sudden, they were guilty. He wasn't trying to make them feel bad. He was saying, you need a Savior, and I'm right here. That's all he was saying. He's saying, we're all in the same boat. We've all got issues that have to be dealt with. Paul says, these are the things you were. You're forgiven, you're sanctified, you're washed in the blood. Jesus gives us life. So the first question we've got to ask here with this topic is homosexuality a sin? Absolutely. Guys, there's no way around it. You have to twist scripture and throw parts of it out in order to get a different answer out of that. Homosexuality is not God's design for our sexuality. But... Many people in our culture today are saying, but homosexuality is different today than it was back then. Back then, it was more, it wasn't monogamous relationships. It was, it, it was, it was male prostitution, and it was, it was pagan worship, and it was abusive type things. It's not the same as today. I, I can't really speak to that, but I will tell you this. In the scripture, they list these things separately. Male prostitution, idolatry, or pagan worship, 
and then they list homosexuality. So people are saying that. It's different today. There's monogamous, monogamous relationships where, where two people of the same sex love each other. Paul's not speaking to the motivation. He's just coming down to a very basic level and simply addressing the behavior of sexual relations between the same sex on a basic level. Does that make sense? It doesn't matter how we want to twist things. It doesn't change what the Bible says. And there's many other examples in Scripture. To come to a different conclusion, we have to totally twist Scripture and disregard it. There's no other way. People say, as I said earlier, the Bible's not relevant today. It's not relevant to the society in which we live. Well, let me tell you, we start walking down a dangerous path when we start picking and choosing the parts of Scripture we think are relevant. Because once we can throw one part out, we have undermined God's word from beginning to end. And we have to throw the entire thing out. So it's not a matter of choice. It's a matter of this is what God's word says, whether we like it or not. Just like this is what God's word says, that we're supposed to be abstinent until we're married. It's exactly the same thing. Listen, we as a church believe in the inerrancy of the scripture. It is God's word from cover to cover. So there's no flexibility. There's no bending. We go by what God's word says 100%. Amen? Homosexuality is a sin. But let me say this. It's listed in a list of sins that puts us all on equal footing before God. It's listed in a list of sins that we are guilty of. True? Just because we can't relate to somebody who has same-sex attraction doesn't mean we're better than they are. Jesus died on the cross just the same for them as he did for us. He loves them just as much as he loves us. They simply need a Savior just as much as we do. Jesus loves homosexuals, and he died for the homosexuals. There's a lot of other questions we could ask. Are people born homosexual? I really don't want to get into this. I believe a case can be made for the answer no. Um, I, I just don't. I've known quite a few homosexuals in my life that I've been fairly close to. And I found, we can talk, we could go on, go on and on about it. And I can give your dad and give you some resources and things you can look at on that. But what I have found is certain people are born with certain tendencies. Just like we, we all have different tendencies in our life to different things. And what I've found is that maybe people are born with certain tendencies that with um, social stimuli growing up, certain things that happened at certain times when they were young and because of the way that they're kind of bent, they can more easily lead that direction. But I can't answer that. Nobody's found a gay gene yet. And, you know, so I don't know. But here's what I do know. It doesn't really matter. We are all capable of all sin. We were born into a fallen world. True? And many of us, many of us right now in our lives, we struggle with things. We have a strong pull toward things that the Bible speaks about. True? And we're walking those things out in our life. And we're trying to get them right before God. We have to look to God's word. We may not like what God says about different things about our behavior. We don't justify it. We try and deal with it. I had a friend 
who was a student at Christ for the Nations. He lived across the hall from me back in 1993. And uh, I've kind of kept with him on Facebook a little bit. But, uh, but last year, he came out of the closet on Facebook. He said that he has always, his entire life, had same-sex attraction. Has never been attracted to a female in his life. And he's never known what to do. And he's been through, he's been through deliverance. And he's been through counseling. He's been through all these different things. And, uh, and he's, tried, he's kept it hush-hush all his life. And he said, I'm coming forward with it. And I thought, oh no, what's he about to do? And he said, I want everybody to know today that I've committed myself to God. I've committed myself a life of celibacy before God. He said, until this desire is gone from me, until I marry a woman that I can truly love intimately, or I go to the grave, I will stay celibate before God. And I was like, I don't know if any of us know what it means to be that devoted to God. That's crazy. That's awesome. The world looks at that and says, well, that's just unrealistic. That's just ridiculous. That's unfair. How can you expect somebody to keep all that bottled up inside and not be able to ever express themselves sexually? Everybody deserves love, right? The deepest love given to us was given to us through Jesus. And he is more than enough if we never have a spouse. He's more than enough for us. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And he will be our best friend and walk with us all the way. 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 9 says, To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given to me a thorn in my flesh. Say, a thorn in my flesh. A messenger of Satan. Say, this was bad, right? Something that's a, how many of you have ever had a thorn in your flesh before? How many of you have literally had a thorn? Oh, that's terrible. But a thorn in your flesh. Maybe it was a person. You ever had a person in your life that was a thorn in the flesh? You're like, Lord, just please remove this person. You know, let them move to Alaska. <laughs> Paul was dealing with a thorn in his flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded the Lord to take it from me. But he said, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Now, every preacher's got a different opinion on what Paul's thorn in the flesh was. Fact of the matter is, nobody truly knows. Some people say it was a sickness or something that he dealt with in his body physically. It could have very well been a person. <laughs> you realize it could have been a temptation. Absolute. Boy, we never looked at the Apostle Paul like that, have we? What? What if there was a temptation that he dealt with and he was struggling with? Don't know. I'm just saying that Paul had something that he was struggling with in his life just like we do. And a lot of times we just read on and that's the answer we give people. My grace is sufficient. But you know the first thing I want to take out of this? It's okay to go to the Lord with whatever it is. Whether it's issues of sexual immorality or whatever it is in our life. And go to the Lord and give it to him. And say, Lord, take this desire from me. I give it over to you. And we see here that Paul pleaded with the Lord. Amen? And so... Paul goes, to him, goes three times to God. And so whatever we're facing, we need to take it to him. But you realize, whether we see the answer in that moment or we don't, God's answer is always, my grace is sufficient for you. That's always his answer. Understanding grace gets thrown around a bit. Grace is not a justification for sin. Grace 
is God's supernatural ability given to us to live a righteous life before him, regardless of the circumstances. Some urges and temptations in life seem so great, and God's answer is, my grace is sufficient for you. You can make it by my grace, my supernatural ability. You do realize the Bible doesn't even say that same-sex attraction is a sin. Those that deal with the issue of same-sex attraction, God's design for sexuality would be celibacy. Life alone without an intimate partner, I know it's got to be difficult. And there are many that will walk with you. And most importantly, Jesus walks with you. And God says, my grace is sufficient, and I've got your back. It's exactly the same counsel we give to single Christians. Can't have sex before I'm married? What are you talking about? You know how difficult that is? My grace is sufficient for you. You can do it. Seek him and he will help. It's his grace. Sex is a great gift from God. However, it pales in comparison to his grace. And homosexual will be saved? Absolutely. They can be saved. Can a person who practices sin be saved? Can someone with same-sex attraction be a practicing Christian? Yes, I've seen it. None of us have achieved a sinless life. We all need a Savior. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 say, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and it is not of yourselves. It is a gift from God, not by works, so that no one can boast. We are not saved by works. In reality, we're not even really saved by repentance. That's part of the process, but we're saved by his grace. Salvation isn't something we achieve. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God who made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is in your notes. Jesus took our identity of sin so that we could take on his identity of righteousness. I heard that comment. I was like, that is awesome. Homosexual? Are you a homosexual? There's somebody, there, there will be people listening to this that are homosexual. I would say to you, you can come to Jesus. You have same-sex attraction, you can absolutely come to Jesus. We all struggle with things. And let me tell you this. God loves to meet us right where we're at. We have this idea that people have to look a certain way and act a certain way to come into the house of the Lord. No way. God loves to meet us right where we're at. However, he loves us too much to leave us in that state. The Christian life is marked by an ongoing process of surrender. Philippians 1.6 says, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will complete it, I'm sorry, will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. When we receive Jesus, when we say, Lord Jesus, be Lord of my life, the process begins. Jesus uses our lifetime to mold us and to shape us into his image. If we are truly surrendered to Jesus, then he's going to come through regularly and he's going to point out areas in our hearts every one of us, and he's going to say, I need you to deal with this. True? It's part of surrendering our, surrendering our lives. It's part of being that new creation. He loves us too much to leave us in the state we were in when we came to him. Here's what I want to stress. Within every true believer, within anybody who has ever 
receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior, there is a desire to obey and please God. So I would ask you several questions. Whether you're dealing with something that's sexually immoral in your life or something different, do I have the desire to please God? Is his word the guide for my life even when I don't like it? Do I listen to him when he points out an area in my heart that needs some work? Do I long to live a righteous life? Do I feel conviction? Does it hurt my heart a little bit when I displease God? I would say if you say no to any of those questions, I would encourage you to dig deep and consider whether Jesus is really Lord of your life. This has nothing to do about your sex, it's nothing to do with your sexual preference. If you don't have the desire to please God, he's probably not Lord of your life. Amen? So, in wrapping this part up, my goodness, in wrapping this up, homosexuality, yes, it's a sin. But let me tell you, we're called to these folks. And I think many times, I don't want to get on a soapbox here, but I think many times the church has handled this issue very improperly. We haven't done a real good job with it. And, you know, we, we've stood within our, not just our church, I'm talking about the universal church, the body of Christ. Many times we stand within our pretty four walls of our church and we point a finger calling them perverts, you know, out on the outside. And, you know, I just can only imagine that if Jesus were walking the earth today, he'd be inviting himself to their house for lunch. And he'd be sitting down sharing a meal with them. I read an article, some of y'all saw, I put this article very hesitantly on Facebook about a month ago, and it said, maybe gays should quit coming out of the closet. And the whole thought was, maybe Christians ought to start stepping in it and giving them a big hug. And, but I only got like one comment on it, and it was actually from a gay friend <laughs> who commented on it. Amen. No. Um, but, but, but really, we've got to change our, we've got to change our thinking. Look, I'm struggling right now, even with what's going on in the news, the whole thing. They're, I understand they're passing these laws for religious freedom, for people to be able to have businesses and have the right to reject. But I struggle with the thought, rejecting business to somebody because they're gay? I, I struggle with it a bit. I, a, a, a pizzeria that won't serve pizza to a homosexual because we're a Christian business? I just can't imagine Jesus doing other thing than anything than serving them all kinds of food. And telling him that he loves them. I, you know, even, I even struggle some with the whole wedding cake thing. Because they're paying for a service. They're, the bakery's not endorsing homosexuality. They're paying for a service. And it got me thinking. I read an article last week that was talking about how they had these same questions back in Jesus' day. They were going to Jesus and they were going, what about these Romans? These Romans that rule our area. They are perverts. They don't follow God's law at all. And they didn't want anything to do with the Romans. And the Romans, Romans ruled their land. And there was a law that said that they had to, if, if a Roman was walking down the road, wherever it may be in the Roman Empire, and they saw somebody else, they could say, hey, you, come carry my things. You could be sitting there spending time on, with, uh, some, with your children, and some punk Roman kid comes walking by, and he would say, this stuff's heavy. Come here, carry it to my house. And you had to do it. And they were asking Jesus, that's why on the Sermon on the Mount, he said, they, they had asked him, and he said, he said, if someone asked you to walk a mile, walk two. Because they were going, we don't want to walk a mile for these perverts. We don't want anything to do with them. And Jesus said, don't just walk a mile, walk two. And they're just shocked. What? We've got to love these folks. 
We got to love them. Our job is not to make gay people straight. It's not our job. Our job is to love them, to share the good news of Jesus with them, and point them to the master. I, I heard someone say this recently, and I want to say it. To anyone that would ever listen to this message that would consider yourself to be homosexual, I say on behalf of anyone who has ever hurt you in the name of Jesus, that I am very sorry. Sorry for every Christian that has ever expressed their opinion of you instead of expressing God's heart for you. Jesus died for you. You were created in God's image. You matter to God. You matter to this church. You were invited to walk this road with the rest of us. A lifetime learning to surrender all by the grace of God. I've got lots of surrendering to do. We all do. As a church, we love homosexuals. We will not tolerate making fun of homosexuals, gay jokes, whatever it may be. We will teach the entire truth of God's word. Absolutely. Can't bend on that. But they are important. And we got to love them and walk with them. As a spirit-filled church, we got to reach out with the fruit of the spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Amen? Let me hit number two. We're going to move real fast now. What about pornography? It's in your notes there. Number two, what about pornography? Is it really that bad? In what case is it acceptable? Let me just answer straight up to begin with. Yes, it's that bad. Yes, it is. I've had people in church say, well, I only use it with my spouse to spice things up. Like, that's a good thing. No. Porn has become so easy to come by, and I believe it's become one of the greatest assaults on the family. A couple of stats I want to give you. Porn sites get more visitors each, each month than Netflix, Amazon, and Twitter combined. 30% of the internet industry is pornography. Mobile porn is expected to reach $2.8 million by the end of 2015. The United States is the largest producer and exporter of hardcore porn. Sex is the fourth most popular search word on the internet. Porn is the sixth most popular search word on the internet. Is it sin? I've never cheated on my wife. I've never committed adultery on my wife. Well, do we need to go back to Matthew 5? <laughs> if you've had the very thought in your mind, you've already committed the act. Adultery, he says you've already committed adultery, that word pornea. Jesus says that just because you haven't engaged in sexual immorality doesn't mean that you're innocent. It's the very thought. Once again, Jesus is not trying to make anybody feel bad. He's leveling the playing field and saying, look, we're all, you're all guilty. You all need a savior. I'm right here. Receive me. Um, Matthew 15, 18 through 20, you've seen your note says, but the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart, and these make a man unclean. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, um, false testimony, slander. These are what make a man unclean. Porn starts in the heart. It's a heart issue. It's not a magazine issue. It's not an internet issue. It's a heart issue. That's where we've got to start. Proverbs 4.23 tells us, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Every thought we have comes forth from our heart. Every sin we commit comes forth from our heart. And it tells us here that we've got to protect it. You may think that porn in your life is innocent. You may think that it's private. You may think that it's harmless, no big deal. All we're doing is fertilizing an issue that's already in our heart. And it's going to blow up. It's going to be destructive. James 1, 13, um, yeah, James 1, 13 through 15 says, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be, be tempted with evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, that's by his heart, he is dragged away and enticed. 
Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, gives birth to death. We have got to guard our hearts. What is pornography? Webster says pornography is a portrayal of sexual subject matter for the purpose of sexual arousal. 2 Corinthians 5.15, and he who died, and he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and was raised again. Jesus selflessly died for us. We're supposed to selflessly live for him. Amen? And let me tell you that porn, 100% of the time, is 100% selfish. It's one of the biggest deals with it. It's selfish. It's all about, I know what I want, and I want it right now, just like this. It's always selfish. Remembering, too, that God's design for sexuality was to be between a husband and a wife for life. And it was supposed to be, it was supposed to be about bringing fulfillment to our spouse. It's never supposed to be about us. It's supposed to be about them. There's nothing about sexuality that was ever supposed to be selfish. Porn makes it 100% selfish. It's instant gratification. Um, verse 16 there said in 2 Corinthians 5, 16, for now, uh, so from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. You know the other problem here? We give ourselves to Christ. One of the first things he does is change the way we see people. Porn absolutely objectifies, usually women and children. They're not a person anymore. They're an object. When you look at that page or you look at that website, it's an object. As believers, we can't look at, the, at people the way the world sees them. We have to look at people with value. People that Jesus loves so much that he went to the cross for them. High value, high worth, high regard. In the kingdom of God, we believe that every person is beautiful. The porn industry is built on objectifying and abusing women and children. I had started reading and I started putting down all the stuff. I'm going to read to you real fast, but I was reading about sex trafficking. Many of the women and children who are being sexually exploited and sex trafficked are also being used for the production of pornography. Sometimes acts of prostitution are filmed without the consent of the victim and then distributed as porn. 36% of porn stars between uh, 2007-2010 died from HIV, suicide, homicide, and drug overdoses. Over 100 straight and gay performers have now died of AIDS. Rates of STDs in the porn industry are 10 times higher than anywhere else in the world. 88% of, of scenes in porn films include sexual aggression and violence. And people hear that and they say, well, I'm not thinking about those things. It's not what I'm picturing. It's not what I'm thinking in those moments. Listen, every time we look at it, every time, we are supporting it. Even if it's just increasing the demand for it, we're supporting it. And some of you would stand back and you would say, well, that's not even part of my world, sex trafficking. Isn't that something that takes place over in Africa somewhere? Y'all see Channel 13 News yesterday? Shelby County has one of the biggest issues with sex trafficking of any other county in the country. Shelby County. Pe people, usually girls, underage, being kidnapped and sold as sex slaves. They reported in the United States one of the number one places to pick up girls for sex trafficking, the Wolf Chase Mall. 
They said last night that sex trafficking pimps can make as much as a million dollars a year. 500 million is not uncommon at all if they can force these girls who are many times underage to sleep with up to two to three guys a night. They keep them in chains. And then they film these things. They make them put a smile on their face. And they sell it as porn. I'm going to read you what I found on humantrafficsearch.net. It said trafficking uh, forces girls into pornography for psychological control. It's possible for a young woman or girl to walk away from sex trafficking and start a new life, but sexually illicit photos and films will follow her forever because it's on the internet, regardless of whether she is under, was underage when the pictures were taken or not. Once on film uh, or uh, image with the girl's face is uploaded to the internet, it's there forever. Traffickers know this and is used as a method of control and blackmail, letting girls know that they are now on the internet and they will never escape this life. Traffickers force girls into pornography for greater financial gain, and it's estimated the pornography industry's annual revenue has now reached $13 billion. just the porn industry. Traffickers can sell sexual photos of women in addition to forcing them into prostitution at great financial gain, and the younger girls, the more expensive photos, um, making, it makes the underground child pornography industry one of the most lucrative markets for sex traffickers. I'll skip on down. Um, pornography is in and of itself a form of sex trafficking. Many organizations such as the Salvation Army say that due to the exploitative nature of the industry, porn is also a form of sex trafficking. Interviews with women who spent time in the porn industry have almost identical stories to girls rescued from sex trafficking. One of the interviewees explained, I would come home bruised and sometimes bloody from rough scenes that I shot. Scenes where I was slapped around and spit on and called horrible things. A recent report held, uh, that held interviews with 854 women in prostitution in nine countries made it clear that pornography is integral to prostitution. In every country, almost half of the respondents said they were forced to make pornography while enslaved in sex trafficking. Porn and the sex industry as a whole assaults the image of God. It is absolutely contrary to everything that God is. It objectifies people, and we gotta, we've got to refuse to look at people as anything less than created in the image of God. We can't tolerate porn in our lives. We can't tolerate it in our families. We cannot tolerate it in our children for one moment. If this is something that you struggle with, I encourage you to rededicate your life to the Lord today to put this away. Let somebody know who can walk with you. There'll be prayer partners up here. You want to get with me, I'll, I'll point you to somebody with our men's ministry, and there can be accountability. Men, I've, I've read some of the stats I did last time. 90-some percent of us stats say 98% or something have dealt with this stuff. It's not a shameful thing for us to come to each other for help. And speaking of our children, I want to hit this last point real quick. Do I really have to teach my kids about sexuality? When should I talk to them? What should I say? Listen, I remember my parents saying things like, I thought things were bad when I was a kid. And now I'm looking back and I'm going, I thought things were bad when I was a kid. Our kids are growing up in a society where sexual immorality is normal and justified. God's word isn't given any place in the matter. When do we talk to our children? Right now. We need to talk to our children. Let me tell you, I don't know if any of you know the software that's out there called Covenant Eyes, but they have a blog that I, I get updates on, and they said the other day that it is so important that you are the first voice to talk to your children before puberty, before their body starts changing, start having questions and talking to their friends and reading off the bathroom walls. 
that we have to be the first voice. They say that age 11 is too late. It's too late. You can't be the, you're not the first voice to shape their sexuality anymore. They're saying that girls are entering puberty as early as seven. They have to be talked to before that. I'm going to be real honest here for a minute. I'm going to tell you my, the first time I remember being exposed to porn. Because here's the deal. I was raised in a good Christian home. My parents talked to me way before I entered puberty. I knew how it worked. It sounded nasty. <laughs> I knew the parts a girl had. Okay, I didn't really care. Sex? My, I mean, I started thinking girls were kind of cute. I can imagine being married one day. Gosh, I got to give her a kid, maybe one. Ugh. <sighs> I remember having that viewpoint until I remember my, the first, my, my first year at, over at White Station Middle School. In that first long hallway, you come in the front door, and all the way down at the end, on the right, I remember it like it was yesterday, the bathroom at the end of the hall. I remember walking to that bathroom, and here's some boys huddled in the corner around a magazine. It wasn't something hardcore, but it was like a, actually, I think it was a Playboy magazine. And they're all huddled around it, and they, they saw the door open, and they all jumped, and they told me, and they went back to looking at it, and I thought nothing. I, I knew what they were looking at. I was like, we don't look at those things. We're Christians, and Jesus don't like that, you know. I didn't say that, but that's what I was thinking in my little head, because I didn't care anything about that stuff, and it's sinful. And I went, and I took care of my business. I was about to walk out. I'm about to walk out of the bathroom until my eye caught that little centerfold they held up for a moment. And I think I had to pick my jaw up off the floor. I might could have two or three kids. <laughs> Maybe 17. 19 kids and counting. There is nothing. Understand this. There is nothing my parents could have done. They had no idea. I probably still don't know. I never heard that. <laughs> um, there is nothing that we can do that is going to keep our kids from being exposed. There is zero today that we can do. We've got to work on their hearts. And we've got to start young. Let me give you a few stats. Nine out of ten, boy, nine out of 10 boys and six out of ten girls are exposed to pornography before 18. The first exposure to pornography around boys, the average is 12 years old. That's where I was. More than seven out of ten teens admit that they hide their online behavior from their parents. A study in southeastern U.S. found that 53% of boys and 28% of girls between 12 and 15 reported the regular use of sexually explicit media. 35% of boys say, of teenage boys say, that they have viewed pornographic videos too many times to count. I mean, I remember one of our kindergartners, one of our kids coming home as a kindergartner and talking about overhearing a conversation on the bus about oral sex. Five years old. Here's what that article said in talking to your children. I'm, I'm basically just going to read to you here. I thought this was great. I added a few of my own things in there. But it said, number one, don't teach. Talk. Have a conversation. Keep it casual. As uncomfortable as it may be for you, make it comfortable as possible for them. Take advantage of every opportunity that arises. Make your kids feel like they can come to you. Nothing, nothing is ever off limits. Never freak out. Your kindergartner comes saying like that. Thank goodness my back was to her when she said it because I was like, <sighs> I was screaming inside. And then I turned around. What did they say? <laughs> 
They said for the toddler, toddlers and pre-K, kids will be curious about their bodies. How many of you know little boys can't keep their hands off that thing? And I know parents that get upset over that and they smack their kid and Okay, we have got to chill out. We got to talk to our kids. Little girls start discovering themselves too. And that's the moment when we start getting in there and saying, that's not appropriate. We can't do that. And we start teaching our little kids what private parts are. It doesn't mean that they're dirty. That just means that it's private. No one else touches it. No one else. For the curious kindergartner, for us, for Aaron, that was the streaking phase. <laughs> they're going to start asking questions like, where does a baby come from? You don't freak out. You always answer those questions. We can't bypass those opportunities. And storks are not a good answer. <laughs> we want to answer these questions as best we can. Don't have to get into specifics. We don't have to pull out the marker board and draw diagrams. But we do have to be truthful. We got to show them we're not afraid to address the topic for our Elementary school kids, we teach them how babies grow. We incorporate scripture. We talk about how God formed them. For the prepubescent teen, 8 to 11, they say this is the most important time. If you haven't done it by this, they're saying between 8 and 11 years old is the most important time of their life for this. They need to know what is going to happen to their body before it happens. Most critical, this is perhaps one of the most critical times in the whole lifelong conversation about sex. This is when most children are exposed to porn. This is the age... And when trying to figure out what's happening in their bodies, they turn to the internet or they turn to friends. We need to discuss it with them before it's discussed in school. We need to be that first voice. A child, they said by the time a child is eight or nine, they're probably ready to know what sex is. Have that conversation. And we don't, all, we don't make our conversation, just don't do it. We've got to explain to them that it's a God-given healthy desire and they're becoming teenagers. And they may begin to have these feelings. And that's not a bad thing. As our teenagers begin to come to us, if we're open to them, they will come to us and they will talk to us. We need to express that their sexual desires and things they're starting to feel are not bad. God gave them to them. We've just got to show them what God's word says and that God wants to keep them from pain and from shame. I got to close. We got to talk. That's the last thing I think in your notes there. We have to talk to our kids through every stage of their childhood about Father's design for their sexuality. We have got to. And I'll be honest with you, as a youth pastor for years and years, most kids, their parents never talk to them. Never. It's not discussed in our house. It was usually the answer. And so we would end up answering a lot of questions. Guys, I got to close. God is not anti-sex. He loves the idea of sex. God is anti-shame. We got to continue to surrender our life every day to Jesus in every area of our lives, including our sexuality. Let's bow our heads together. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, that's your very first step. Jesus loves you so much, and he takes you, accepts you right where you're at, right now. You don't have to change a thing in this moment except make a decision within your heart that, you know what, this is too important. I can't put it off another moment. I've got to change my life, and my first step right now is going to be to surrender my life to Jesus. It's not going to be easy. He's going to point out areas in your heart and your life, things he's going to say, you know what, you need to begin to work on this. But it is so worth it. It is so worth it. It's so worth being able to live in this life and know that he is our hope and that he's got our back. And that when this world is wiped away, we will be for eternity present with him.
All you've got to do is take that big step and say, Lord, I surrender my life to you. When I was talking a few minutes ago, it may be that you couldn't answer those questions. Yes. Do you desire, do you have the desire inside of you to live a life that pleases God? Does it hurt your heart when you let him down? If you say no to those questions, I would ask you today, please rededicate your life to the Lord. Please say today, Lord, I want my desires to change. I want to live a life that pleases you. I want to do things your way. I'm tired of living a destructive life. I want to please you, Lord. With every head bowed, if, if that's you in this room and you would say, I want to give my life to Jesus this morning or I want to rededicate my life to him right now, with every head bowed, let me get you to lift your hand for me. Oh, man. Amen. Goodness. Five. Anybody else? Six, seven, eight, nine. That's humbling. Anybody else? Man, that's awesome. We're going to pray a prayer. Now, I would ask you just to pray. We're all going to pray it together. I'm not going to call you down front. We're just going to pray this together. And all the Bible says, all you've got to do is confess with your mouth and believe with your heart. And you're just saying, God, I surrender all. Let's pray together. Dear God, I come to you today. I ask you to forgive me of my sins. I am so sorry for the way I've lived my life. I give my life to you today. I surrender my life to you today. I make you the captain of my life. I believe. I believe in you, Jesus. I believe you came. I believe you died for me. And I believe you were raised on that third day. I surrender my life to you. I give you everything. Make me that new creation. I repent. I want to live a life that's blameless before you. Holy Spirit, fill me now. Empower me to be everything, to do everything that you've called me to do. I live for you from this day on in Jesus' name. Still with every head bowed, I would ask you, even if you didn't raise your hand, if you surrendered all of your life to Jesus, if you surrendered your sex life to Jesus, or are you a sexual atheist? Singles, have you committed yourself to abstinence and purity until marriage with no excuses? Couples engaged or dating, have you committed yourself to saving yourself until your wedding day? Married couple, have you embraced your, God's plan for your marriage by being dedicated to your spouse alone and being always available and always interested and always there? Have you set your mind to not be defiled by pornography and other forms of sexual immorality? That's you. Just as one last opportunity. I just encourage you to surrender it to him now. You may be here and you may say, you don't understand, I've struggled with this for so long. I don't know where else to turn or what else to do. This shame has eaten me alive. God, I pray for everyone who feels that in their heart. They're surrendering in this moment. Thank you, Lord, that you take the shame and the pain and you replace it with your love and your embrace. Lord, surround us by those. Help us find those who are going to lead us in godly counsel and point us in the right direction. Those who love us enough to tell us the truth. 
Uh, we want to live a life that pleases you every area of our life, including our sexuality. We give you honor and we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'd like to get more information about resources from Church of the Harvest, please check out our website at midsouthharvest.org. You may also contact us by phone at 662-890-1573 or toll free at 866-383-8277. You are Lord of my